All right, you want to say some things in the microphone to make sure it's on? Things right. and stuff. Tilt down. Speak. Yeah. Speaking. Yeah, speak. Speaking. Speaking. Speaking words. Speaking. Mm, words. Got him. Consonants. Did you get him? Did you get them all? I'm Christiane. And I'm Greg. And we've had a book club for like a decade. And we've read a lot of books. Yeah, yeah, fair amount. And sometimes we've talked about them. Yep. But a lot of times we just drank and gossiped. Yeah, that was mainly our thing. So at the sad passing of David Bowie uh, at the beginning of this year, we decided to get our act together. Yep. And read through his inspiring list of 100 most influential books in no particular order. In fact, in kind of a nonsensical order. And so we are reading through them one by one and talking about, well, making wild speculation about what they probably meant to Bowie and why he put them on his list. Yeah, yeah. I think that's mostly what we're doing is wild (laughs) speculation. And this will be as wild as they come. It's going to be... This one's a little bit more concrete. It's going to be slippery when wet. (laughs) Wild. (laughs) <laughs> the wet and wild Bowie edition. <laughs> Get out your goggles. Okay, I'm never going to talk like that again. Sorry. Um, there's two titles to this one. Oh, start with the first one, I, I guess. So initially, we uh, the, on on the list. It's called "All the Emperor's Horses." Nice title. Yeah, yeah. Book is not available. <laughs> <laughs> Under under that title anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in doing research, trying to find copies of this book, um, we discovered it was retitled. Uh, so originally, All the Emperor's Horses was published in 1960 by author David Kidd. Yep. And he originally published it in like a serial short story uh, format in The New Yorker at that time, 1960. Oh, okay. Um, but then for some reason, in 1988, they decided to rename it when 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 they reissued it yeah. I guess. it's the reissued and new york review of books edition peking story the last days of old china which i just it, it kind of it makes it sound like it's uh, uh not a memoir so much as like here here's a uh, like a factual yeah you know, retelling of what happened yeah yes and so that's like a wide like berth then from going to like a serial short story yeah to sounding like a historical a history. Like a dry kind of history, yeah. yeah. And and and, it, and I think the one of the key things about the book is it's not a dry history at all. It's a very, um, I guess we'll talk about whether it's biased or romantic. whether it's or romantic, yeah. And not in like like a Disney, like princesses meet not like Prince a, Charming kind of romantic. What, what's that one movie? Elsa, Elsa the Freezer, something <laughs> like that. <laughs> And they, and they Elsa that, and the Freezer. Elsa and the Freezer. Yeah, yeah. That, I heard that's very popular amongst the children these days. <laughs> you you really got your finger your on finger the button on the, of youth. Yeah, millennials. <laughs> that's our audience. Every time. <laughs> um, so maybe maybe you can give us the lowdown on what this book is actually about. <laughs> no freezers. Oh. Um. So, nineteen-year-old kid goes to china because he's in love with 
Or there was something I kept reading in his biography. He listened to the Rite of Spring and then he took off for the world. And he just like, I'm going to travel. I'm going to go see the world. Yeah, because he was like, I think he grew up in Kansas and he was going to the University of Michigan and he was an exchange student. He was like 19 years old and he went to Peking. And what, I mean, and, and now no- known as Beijing. And, and knowing like, uh, he must have been aware of like what was going on. Like, I wonder if he wanted to be in a city that was, you know, changing really rapidly. Yeah, I don't know. I I would be interested. I unfortunately my the extent of my knowledge of the communist revu- revolution in China is not great. So yeah. I don't know when people in the West would have been seeing signs of it happening. Yeah, maybe or whether he was totally ignorant. Because right. yeah. there's part of him. He's very romantic about Chinese culture and. Right. He's there because he's in love with the architecture and the art and the opera. And, and I think that's something that continued uh, from, you know, from what we read, like throughout his whole life, that, you know, that fascination with Asian art and architecture and, and, and culture. And the, and the book kind of opens up with him meeting his soon-to-be wife at the Chinese opera. Mm-hmm. And it's a, you know, a great description of like how like he's, he's in his box uh, eating salted watermelon seeds and drinking tea, you know, in, in, in the stifling kind of heat. Like, and it is, it, it is very evocative of like what life was like for in, in that era. Yeah. <clears throat> and it was 1948, I think is when he meets her. Like that's kind of the beginning. He had been in China maybe a year or so. And then he meets her, um, and she opens the door. I mean, that, that scene in the opera is when like, she takes him backstage and introduces him to the star. And so she like, opens up this, this world. Yeah, instead of being an outsider in the culture, suddenly he has like, an in mm-hmm. on it. And so they get married the next year. Of, of, as you do. <laughs> you know, you meet at the opera, get married. It was, it's, it's just like so many wa- salted watermelon <laughs> seeds to him. <laughs> um. And it was a bit of a rushed affair because shit was going down in China at that yeah, time. <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah, maybe we better take care of this now before like I get kicked out, essentially. Yeah, there was the worry that he was going to be removed. Uh, also, her father was dying. Um, there was also the worry that even if he wasn't removed, he would not be able to live in her home with she and her family because they were instituting rules about how Westerners could interact and how they couldn't. So they sort of, it's kind of a comical farce about how they get married, how they have to find someone who will legally marry them. And and then they have to pick like, okay, out of the religions that you could choose, we think these are bogus. So you got to have a Christian one. Right. Or also then none of the Christian um, foreign priests would do it because it was an interracial marriage. So there was some weird stuff and so they finally find some guy who was like the janitor's brother or something yeah yeah totally like they, they find like one of their servants is like oh yeah my brother is into that weird christian shit yeah <laughs> so let's go grab him <laughs> what, they paid him like the equivalent of like five dollars or something right it, but but it was a lot yeah it was more than they had thought they were gonna yeah pay, yeah so they and, started getting kind of ripped off early on. <laughs> and the description of the ceremony is like he he 
yells some things and waves his arms around <laughs> a little bit and like, okay, you're married. <laughs> yeah, so he kind of romantically portrays it's sort of the last great wedding, uh, traditional wedding, you know, with all the feasts and robes. And then he also is part of the last great funeral when the father does die and sort of a ceremony that isn't practiced anymore because of the communist revolution. Um, and I think, that, yeah, this is a book that is very, you know, kind of squarely of Lass, mm-hmm. um, in which he, he really does enjoy, like, kind of really, um, you know, it's, it, um, not to tie it too closely to Bowie, but it, it kind of does feel like that sort of goth, like, just <laughs> wallowing in despair, you know, like, oh. God. Despair, but also in just, like, aesthetics. Yeah, like, yeah, the aesthetics of despair, yeah, too. Just so much beauty in the rotting mansion, um, which is really, like, I think he married her for the rotting mansion. <laughs> and I kind of, I want to read this in, like, a Bauhaus voice. <laughs> From the, uh, I guess, from the funeral. We should have the ghosts of the drowned, the frozen. (laughs) (laughs) It was a beautiful passage. Like the ghosts of the drowned, the frozen, the starved were called. The ghosts of lovers, suicides, children, and fishermen. Come on. That's like Nick Cave lyrics. (laughs) Concubines and murdered emperors, beggars and widows were conjured up. And that's probably most of his imagination. Like the, the, the Buddhist priest doing the funeral is probably like, Uncle Freddy... (laughs) <laughs> Auntie Chin. Well, she didn't die yet. <laughs> yeah, the ceremony and aesthetics of everything are so magnetic. Yeah, yeah. But in the course of things, so he moves into this house that is, in fact, falling down around them. Right, in, in like the total gothic mansion decrepitude. Beautiful and and creaky and full of antiques and falling down and, and but and the family is all packing in there um and and in this sort of um all their money has been seized or yeah. de- discredited like it's it doesn't have value anymore right um, and basically the only thing they have is a house that's falling apart mm-hmm. and they're trying to figure out what to do so he and it's interesting that that you know he kind of he talks you know, a bit about like how eldest brother is trying to keep pigs in this in mm-hmm. one of the pools and the in fails the, and fails mm-hmm. but he spends so much time and talking about the house how to keep the garden alive how to yeah yeah and kind of like you know like the the beautiful objects in the house they, they almost seem and and the introduction kind of calls this out too like the house is more important to him than mm-hmm. his wife or, or the family um you know, yeah. He's just fascinated by the objects and or they're how of they're equal decaying. value. They are all yeah. of the same kind of level of of interest to him. Right, right. And and there is this like the house and the way of life of these wealthy of this wealthy family, the Yu family, is is rotting because it's cut off um, with the development of, and all of the new restrictions of of the communist government. Um, and so you're kind of just seeing it strangled until they just have to give up. Right, right. And leave. And, and there's that sort of like, the, there's a final, almost like a final um, uh, penultimate kind of scene where they have a big costume party mm-hmm. and everyone like, you know, the sort of elite get together and, and, and have this, you know, elaborate fancy party with, and, and, I'm pretty sure this isn't actually true, which like the communist 
you know, police force were really interested in like, like, what are you doing? You're having a, an illicit meeting because there isn't an actual word for party. Oh, right. And so, so you must be having some sort of political it's meeting because that's the only thing you, yeah. that you can do when people are gathering, they're talking about politics, obviously. And like, no, we're actually dressing up like weirdos, you know, and like enjoying ourselves His, and getting drunk. Historic elite figures. It's all, yeah, foreigners and, and old wealthy family dressing up as the past. Yeah, yeah. And even Auntie Chin, who's my favorite character. So she, uh, she's like the old aunt who who occupies a suite of rooms in the in the in the mansion and plays. Is it mahjong all the time? No, she, she plays mahjong is illegal. That's right. That's right. <laughs> They're not allowed to play. She just plays like bridge or or like partner and, games and smokes her asthma cigarettes. I think. Right, whatever Calm, those are. Which is, I think that's medical marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> And plays cards, yeah. We're, we're, I think he says she always wins. Yeah, she's just like at this table, and you can come and sit with her and and like have counsel, but she will always be there, sort yeah. of yeah. holding down this, kind of holding down this tradition. And at that costume party, you know, David Kidd is dressed up as an old emperor of China, and and he goes in at one point to her room, and she's not participating in the party, and. She, this is from the book, she slapped the cards onto the table and her head swaying, chanted what I took to be part of a poem. Golden pendants and silver pins are smashed and blood red skirts are stained with wine. She stopped abruptly and then spoke again. This is how the great have always perished, she said. Their sins turned day to night and their follies opened up the gates of hell. But they lived boldly and when the time came, they died boldly too. You out there in the garden celebrating your own end are nothing like them, however you may dress. Okay, okay do that again, but in the metal voice. <laughs> oh. <laughs> right, Wait. so she's sort of the... Well, he is celebrating the aesthetics of, a, of an era and a time and a culture. She's talking about, you know, this, this hard-won... Um, moral fortitude of of a people who would have you know been murdered in mass and, and would have fought back yeah and letting this happen instead of going quietly into that dark night which which he seems you know in some ways he he's sad about it but the way he represents it in the book is like well this is inevitable you know yeah and i mean i had we talked about it i had some complicated feelings about i mean of course, I don't like that mahjong is considered illegal because games cannot be celebrated as positive, and it, that they kill the dogs and they like sneak around on the roofs. All the you know yeah, the communist, like, um, the boogeymen that they're all afraid of. Right, like there's informers that are are like lurking about, like waiting to find you playing cards mm -hmm. or playing mahjong. And they actually do, and it, it's yeah. like a it's a valid fear. They are in prisoned or, or taken for questioning or punished for doing things of leisure and and that i mean i like leisure yeah yeah you're basically a lord of leisure <laughs> basically a bourgeois <laughs> um but there's this other part that just felt a little odd that it's this you know oh poor us wealthy people like, what? like the, the down abbey syndrome yeah our way of life is threatened and now we don't know what to do 
Like there's some part where you're like, ah, oh, there's a lot more context here than yeah, yeah. And I, th I think that's one of the things that's tough about this book is he doesn't really give you. It's very one-sided. Like the communists are all I mean, I, opportunists. Imagine they're opportunists. Are the the soldiers are all like literally like their heads are made of wood. You know, <laughs> just like like googly eyes on a wood block <laughs> that's attached to a uniform. And or, or, yeah, and the and the the most intelligent. People on the on the communist sides are opportunists, like the the cook, mm -hmm. um, who takes him to court and sues him for bad treatment, and it it's totally not founded on anything. Yeah, except yeah. trying to get money from a right. foreigner because they know that there's a disadvantage that foreigners have as being untrusted by the government. Right, right, and he has to pretend that he doesn't know how to speak Chinese. Like he has to basically you know, feign ignorance to to get out of the case. But but there is this. It is very much where, you know, you know what side he would want to be on, which is like the imperialists. You know, the people mm -hmm. who are keeping most of China in poverty, like in starvation level poverty for for centuries. Yeah. You know, like, but they have prettier stuff. You know? <laughs> it's the aesthetics of it. <laughs> right, right, right. And that's that's kind of like, like you said. On the one hand, you get it because, like, you know, um, it's. As far as the sex go, that's you know much more pleasant. But on the other hand, like he, he he writes the whole book as if starvation doesn't exist, or as if like the people of China are, um, would have been super happy just to keep up with right or or the family. Disparity. This formerly wealthy family starts struggling, and they don't know what they're going to do, and they don't know how they're going to keep their house, and they don't know if they're going to be able to make it. Like all these struggles of the poor which they are now facing for the first time and that's what we start that's the sympathy we have so i have this yeah. complicated like yeah. yeah those are the people we care about because we're hearing their story but if it and then and then you do kind of get it in towards the end of the book when he returns to Peking like years later and he meets up with some of the family members and they're in much reduced circumstances, but they still like give him a feast and provide him with this, this really, you know, expensive gift. Mm -hmm. And, and, and suddenly for him, it's like not so much about the objects as, as the people, mm -hmm. you know, his gift, he's like, he, he's like, I got him some soap and some American cigarettes. And he's like, cause uh, they can trade these in the market. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And, and suddenly like, he has, I think he has sort of a comeuppance in some ways or like a realization of like, um, like the real character of the family becomes much more valuable than the, the, the house that they had or the incense burners or the, the other yeah. antiques. Um, yeah, I wish that was explored. So that, that's yeah, an interesting, yeah, it, it, was, it came up very much at the end, you know? And I don't believe, okay, so originally this book was published in, 1960 and so it wasn't re-released until the 80s and this last section where he he returns um years later so he goes back in 1981 oh, okay okay um and this is after so he he leaves and i don't think this is too much spoiler but um he okay, and his uh, wife turn turn it off now <laughs> if, you're, if you haven't seen peaking or red peaking story <laughs> If you haven't seen the blockbuster thriller Peking Story, starring, why didn't they starring Chris Pratt as Peking Story? Keep the original title, All the Emperor's Horses. So much more 
Yeah. It's, just, it's got that thing. Uh, that Chris Pratt movie. Yeah. I mean, Chris Pratt would have definitely signed on for a movie called All the King's Horse. Peking Story, you can't even get to Coveney at that, <laughs> that kind of title. Um, Apologies to fans of David Duchovny. I love him. So you just apologize to yourself. I gen- I often do. <laughs> um, so, so the house falls apart. They sell it. The family moves out. Disillusion of the peaking dream. Annie Chin goes riding off to a nunnery. Oh, yeah, to she's so herbs. great. Yeah. yeah. And is defiant with her medical asthma, yeah. marijuana cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, David Kidd and his wife Amy uh, immigrate. Well, she immigrates to the, the States with him. And then they promptly divorce. And, and she goes on to a, a very prosperous uh, yeah, career as a physicist. Yep. And he says he flounders around for a while and can't figure out what to do. And he moves to Japan. After after being apparently persecuted, is like, what are you, a commie? Oh, like yeah. He, he ended up getting a lot of flack. So because that, you were there and yeah. you weren't speaking against communism. And, or even, even just the association. Mm, you know, you were there. You yeah. must be a communist. Right, because it's like McCarthyism yeah, full yeah. force. So the 50s must have been really tough. And not to mention that he was gay, which was not disclosed in the book at all. I didn't right. pull any of this out until I was reading more of his biography. Um, so some people were pointing out that the marriage was actually just a way to help his friend get out of China. Um because, yeah, they, they come over and then they get divorced and he moves back to Japan. And and, and they remain friends. So yeah. C- clearly, yeah, yeah. In the book, he just says, um, we parted, but neither of us ever married again. You know, as though we just yeah, yeah. It's, never it, found another it's, person. It's sort of like the old trope of the, of the committed bachelor. You right. Know, just a way of describing. But David Kidd moved to Japan and became... Um, very well known there as an art historian and collector and uh, a resource, sort of an art resource to the stars. And he lived there for decades. Who wouldn't want that job? <laughs> art resource to the stars. And he lived there for decades with his partner. Um, who, I'm sorry, I probably pronounced this wrong. Yasuyoshi Morimoto, who was a young student and became originally a kid's driver and then his friend and then his life partner. And so at some point he left uh, and he visited Peking again because he hadn't been there in a long time. Right. And that was when he encounters his family again. And, and who showed him this incredibly ga- gracious response. And, and I think, I, I'm, I'm glad we read, you know, this version of it for that. Because yeah. it does really feel like, like he was you know, he discovered something like he actually really did learn something. Yeah. The end made it for me when, I mean, it's still very romantic. It's still, he, he goes back and, and, and sees like, yeah, everything was destroyed. All the beauty yeah. that I remember. And, and now it's all this brutalist communist architecture and yeah. none of the, the Buddhas are, uh, that he saw the, the, the beautiful, like huge Buddha statues he saw at a temple and, in in the original scene where he sees them is just incredible. You know, mm-hmm. like the way they're revealed, um, that you know, because these temples are are very rarely opened, and then coming back and seeing that, like, oh yeah, they they sold those for scrap. It's probably artillery now. Yeah, like it is a very much you, know, you can see that contrast between like where aesthetics matter and where they don't. 
you know, and, and, and seeing that sort of divide between like, like, um, the communist countries where like, it, it felt like the, what we heard about them was that art was just outlawed unless it was propaganda. And so it does fit into that narrative of like, um, and, and, and in some ways it's interesting, like looking at that in terms of Octobriana too, mm -hmm. where this idea like, that oh, you fake had to sneak, art? yeah. <laughs> and like, oh, you've got to sneak art out of Russia because they don't really allow it, you know? Right. So it, I'm trying to think of like where this fits in Bowie's mind too, you know, well, the fascination with communism and Russia and. Yeah, the, I think, I think it's more that personal, the, the, the art and aesthetics, yeah. the the sadness of loss of things changing, um, and also because uh, he was friends with David Kidd. <laughs> so, like, just gonna give him, give him a plug on the hundred books list, my, my buddy Kitty. <laughs> um, when I was when I was researching, um, there was a couple. Uh, there was a really great obituary in the New York Times um, that talked about David Kidd and his his history in the art community um, and very pointedly said, uh, so he died in 1996 and it said his friends said the cause was cancer. So that, that is his very direct um, information about how he died, which right. leaves some questions in my mind about why it's so direct. But anyway, um, then there was another article that talked that was um more of a a look at his partner um Morimoto and it was from the Ant Arts and Antiques uh, magazine and he he talked about how he and Kid had met and and what their life was like and how they moved a house when they wanted to keep it they just disassembled it and moved it somewhere else <laughs> um but he also said, um, so in the article it says, in the world of Asian art collecting, Kid and Morimoto became the go-to experts for a range of inquisitive, discreet clients, like the rock star David Bowie. And Morimoto uh -huh. says, <laughs> it all's there. <laughs> Morimoto says, uh, we met Bowie through his Japanese makeup artist. Um, he liked to come to Japan to present concerts, and we became good friends with him and his wife. And there's photos in the collector's home that show Kid, Morimoto, and Bowie uh, dining together in tatami matted rooms. And Morimoto says, we used to drive Bowie disguised around Kyoto in a Cadillac. Um, so they they had a friendship, he, yeah. I guess. And, and I guess it, it makes sense, you know, that, that saying like, oh, he died of cancer is, is like sort of coded um, for... You know, in, in, in generations before, we, you had to be really closeted about your sexuality, mm -hmm. where, you know, that's the way of saying, like, well, he, you know, he died of AIDS. It could and, be, and or... It's it, possible, yeah. It could be, I was talking to my colleague about this, it, it could be that it was coding to protect his sexuality. Yeah, totally. Or it could have been coding for... For people to say like, yeah, you knew he was gay, but no, he really just died of cancer. Like, right, right. It, let's not like blow an epidemic out of proportion and assume that every gay man that dies dies of AIDS. Yeah, yeah. So, so it could it could have gone really either way. Yeah. You know, but there is something about like how he um, how he had to keep his sexuality really under wraps. Mm -hmm. you, you know. Yeah. Um, 
um, yeah, so I think we solved it, right? Yeah, I, th- I think I think um, we've wrapped this pretty much up. Oh, also, Bowie bought the movie rights again. So he bought the movie rights to Octoberiana. God, he was just buying movie rights left and right. And he, he also bought the movie rights to Peking Story because he was initially going to cast himself as David Kidd and make the film. And I think so. he would have looked really good in the costume party. Yeah. That would have been good. I would have seen that. And actually, <laughs> he just kept the costume and made Legend <laughs> instead. Wait, was he in Legend? No. No, Labyrinth. Labyrinth, yeah, sorry. Jeez, Greg. I've, it's not my fault I have a speech impediment. L words are <laughs> difficult for me. <laughs> oh, now you make me feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> Shoes on the other hand, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, um, going back to a more somber note, um, so the the song that we chose for this episode um, kind of harkens back to that nostalgia for a particular place and time, and uh, so we chose uh, where where are we now from uh, his sort of weirdly understated comeback record in the '90s, and I, I can't remember the name of it now. What was the name of the Next record? Day? The, yeah, the next day. Yep, yep. Which is like the first thing he put out in after like, like ten years. Yeah, yeah. And he just supposedly just like dropped the single, and didn't say anything, just so that people would find it. Where there was no like, like he just announcement posted on the internet or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the, uh, yeah, and it's it's a beautiful song. Um, and it, it's a very weird, sad. Yeah, it's a very beautiful, weird, sad song, um, with a very uncomfortable video oh yeah um and the video we'll, we'll post yeah there's a lot going on there i mean the song just feels like aging and yeah. loss and change which felt really connected to this and like the revisiting of a place of your youth or and seeing how yeah, much it's changed a place that doesn't exist anymore and the memories of it and um yeah there was a great quote i found from visconti about uh about where are we now and how that was released as this single on an otherwise like really energetic rock album. And he said, yeah, he, he should come out with um, a bang, but he is a master of his own life. And I think this was a very smart move linking the past with the future. And yeah. And I think there, there's that sort of el- elegaic, you know, feeling in a lot of Bowie songs, like even like five years and like, um, there's the sense of like trying to reconnect to a past. Um, and he was like sick. It came out on, he released it on his 66th birthday, I think. So the, was, the, there was like a real connection there for him, yeah. like to the past of his youth. Wow. Damn man. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, um, I, th- I think we'll all be glad when we see the back of this year. Man. Um, speaking of, I know that's reconnecting to the past. Reading this book, it was, there was a lot of, I mean, it's a very, very, how many, very, 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 more varies, different <laughs> political situation for sure. Like the historic, like move into communism in China versus what we're going through now. And yet, go ahead. I was going to say, are we going to talk politics? Then. <laughs> All right. <laughs> there was... <laughs> There's just that feeling I, I resounded with in, in reading this. Like, though I had a lot of hesitation about the elitism and, and the 
the romantic and trying to guess on the side of the imperialist yeah the romantic imperialist past but but the more human sense of not knowing what is going to happen like yeah yeah things are changing and there's no clear path to like and it's a very scary path already like yep. things are already in place in in this book you know they're being monitored they're they're being just crowded in with people with a lot of uh, malice and whether anyone's right or wrong, there's a lot of fear about what freedoms will remain to you and what will be taken away from you. And yeah, yeah, and definitely got that that sense as well that like they're on the edge of like a, like a like a sea change, you know, something that's very like their lives are going to be very different yeah. and, and diminished in, in some ways, in a lot of ways. Um, it's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. So let's end. I guess we're gonna end on a really up note. <laughs> Where are we now? <laughs> yeah. Um. What What are we reading next? Like the the Book of Revelations, the Apocrypha, Nostradamus. The, how to survive? <laughs> we're in the reading wilderness. The Outsider by Colin the, Wilson. The out- I think I've read this book before. Have you? Maybe. It sounds. It sounds super familiar. The Outsider by Colin Wilson. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, we hope, hopefully you will join us in a month or so um, to read The Outsider. Uh, so where can people uh, find us and talk to us before then? Oh, man, we have to get this right this time. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> you can find us online at thebowiebookclub.com. Yep. And on the Facebooks yep. at Bowie Book Club. And on Twitter is Bowie Book Pod. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think we're on the Tumblers somewhere mm-hmm. as well. Yep. Bowie Book Club. And you can rate and review us on iTunes, um, which would be huge. Yes, please do. Because that's how people, we helps should, people we find should us. should incentivize this in some way. If you review us on iTunes, we will, and uh, send us your address. Um, we will personally send you an a Bowie Book Club bookmark um, and a recommendation of a really good Bowie or non-Bowie song written on it. Or just some random books because we're just reading random yeah, books. Actually, yeah, we got a shitload of and random so books. We're so just yeah. like, well, we don't know what we're getting into this year, so we just might send you a random book. <laughs> oh, okay. And if you review us, I'll send you a random 45 record. Ooh, yeah. wow. This is getting This is getting bigger. I will send you my cat. No. <laughs> Let's stop. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. I'm not saying my cat anymore. You just like cut off everyone with cat allergies. Oh, <laughs> most of our audience? Maybe? I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Um, so How we'll, many of you have cat allergies? Write in and tell us. Or <laughs> Actually, okay. Do, instead of doing that, post a review on iTunes, a five-star review, <laughs> um, or at least a you star for bribe. as many cats as you have. <laughs> uh, no. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> this is getting complicated. Yeah. Okay, we better we better move on from now. <laughs> so the music is playing underneath us. Uh, this has been the Bowie Book Club. Had to get the train from Potsdamer Flats. 
because well like this one was a totally different name than original uh, originally on the list but I finally tracked it down I ordered it special order from the Elliott Bay Book Company my alma mater and, and um, where where can people go to be at the Elliott Bay Book Company on Capitol Hill Seattle Washington New York one zero one zero Capitol Hill Seattle Washington New York is everything New York to you Greg <laughs> Sorry. Okay, let's cut that out and try it again. No, that's perfect.